It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, July 3, 2020. On today's episode, in honor of Canada Day, music librarian Farah Mohammed will present Tapestry of Canadian Music. TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here, and he has more recommendations for your weekend and the week ahead. He'll be discussing the Montreal-area movie theaters that are reopening today, Friday. He'll also be speaking about uh, John Ford Westerns, the recent controversy about Gone with the Wind, the secret life of Raymond Burr, and also a note on the life and legacy of Carl Reiner, who passed away this week. On this day in history, July 3, 1608, Samuel de Champlain founds Quebec City. The Algonquian people had originally named the area Quebec, an Algonquian word meaning where the river narrows, which of course it does. That's part of the reason why Champlain chose that location for the permanent settlement there, and he adopted the Algonquin name. There had been an Iroquois settlement there that was called Stadacana, but by 1608, it had been abandoned. On July 3rd, 1845, pioneering French magician Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin opened his magic theater in Paris. Robert Houdin is considered the father of modern magic. He was the one who first performed in a theater, in formal clothes, and future magicians would basically copy his attire. The American magician, Eric Weiss, began his own career in the 1890s, and he paid homage to his hero, Robert Houdin, by adding an I to the end of his name, and he became Harry Houdini, H-O-U-D-I-N-I. On July 3, 1985, Back to the Future was released. Of course, this is the movie directed by Robert Zemeckis, starring Canadian Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd. Back to the Future grossed over $381 million worldwide, and it was the highest grossing film of 1985. Now, a little known fact about the movie is that right after finishing the fifth grade, my family won tickets to see the Montreal premiere from a radio station that was having a contest. It's a very little known fact, actually. Anyway, it was one of the very first times that I had seen a movie about time travel. And of course, that summer, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis was everywhere. 1985. What a year. Loved it. That was This Day in History. And now here is music librarian Farah Muhammad. Hello, and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and for today, we celebrate the music this great country has to offer. As you know, Canada Day was just a few days ago. Canadians usually celebrate with high-profile outdoor events, local parades, and the pomp and pageantry on Parliament Hill. However, due to the global pandemic, Canadians were relegated to backyard barbecues and online offerings in order to keep gatherings at a minimum. So, for our Canada Day celebrations, today's playlist will reflect the rich and varied musical heritage of this great nation. In Canada, the term Indigenous Peoples, or Aboriginal Peoples, refers to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Peoples. These are the original inhabitants of the land that is now Canada. There are 634 First Nation communities across this land, speaking more than 50 distinct languages. 
Indigenous peoples have been in Canada since time immemorial. The Mohawk are traditionally the keepers of the eastern door of the Six Nations Confederacy. Their original homeland is the northeastern region of New York State, extending into southern Canada and Vermont. Here is just a short excerpt of a Mohawk chant by David Maracle. Few countries possess a folk music tradition as rich and culturally varied as Canada's. Traditional folk music of European origin has been present in Canada since the arrival of the first French and British settlers in the 16th and 17th centuries. Acadia particularly refers to regions of the Maritimes with French roots, language, and culture, primarily in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, the Magdalen Islands, and Prince Edward Island. Music and song have always been an important part of Acadian culture. The Acadians brought hundreds of old French songs, many of which were originally accompanied by dances. Here is such a dance. This is called Acadian Reel by Eddie Arsenault. This typifies folk dance music of the region, with its characteristic foot-stomping, energetic rhythms and joyous tune.
gospel music as we know it began in the 1930s, but its origins can be seen to have taken place much earlier in the southern states. African-American communities in the late 19th century would come together in their churches to give praise and sing poignant spirituals and hymns. The power of the message would often come through the hand-clapping and foot-stomping still seen in churches to this day. This style of singing greatly influenced black church communities in Canada in areas settled by emancipated slaves in the Maritimes and in western Ontario. By the 1980s, gospel music became an integral part of the fabric of Canada's musical heritage. In 1982, along with Daisy Peterson Sweeney, the sister of Oscar Peterson, Trevor Payne founded the Montreal Jubilation Choir. The choir has performed for kings and queens and heads of state, including Nelson Mandela and Queen Elizabeth. This group has also cut a dozen discs and has made at least 14 appearances at the Montreal International Jazz Festival. Here is the Montreal Jubilation Choir singing Oh, happy day.
When talking about jazz in general, in Canada, or even around the world, the name Oscar Peterson would most certainly be acknowledged. Oscar Peterson is one of Canada's most honoured musicians. He is widely regarded as one of the greatest jazz pianists of all time. He was renowned for his remarkable speed and dexterity, meticulous and ornate technique, and dazzling swinging style. He was a performer who could instantly inspire awe and had the respect of other great jazz musicians. He earned nicknames like the Brown Bomber of Boogie Woogie or the Master of Swing. And of course there was the Maharaja of the Keyboard from none other than Duke Ellington. One of the most prolific major stars in jazz history, he amassed an enormous discography. From the 1950s until his death, he released some four or five albums a year, toured Europe and Japan frequently, and became a big draw at jazz festivals. Here he is playing his Sea Jam Blues.
far, we've heard a little indigenous music, folk music, gospel, and jazz. However, I would be terribly remiss if I didn't mention the work of Calixa Lavallee. Why? Because he composed a song that we all know. Calixa Lavallee, who was born in 1842 and died in 1891, was a French-Canadian-American composer and Union Army Band musician during the American Civil War. He had a proper classical music education and gave his first concert at the age of 13 at the Royal Theatre in Montreal. He travelled extensively, concertizing all over the States, Mexico, and even Brazil. He is best known for composing the music for O Canada, which officially became our national anthem in 1980. Now, I know we all are familiar with O Canada, so I won't play that. I'll play another one of his pieces instead. This is called Le Papillon, or The Butterfly. This kind of 19th century classical music is representative of a broader genre called salon music, or miniatures, which are short pieces descriptive of their titles written for piano. My last number represents a very important part of the Canadian musical landscape, coming from one of Canada's oldest immigrant communities. From the turn of the century to the end of the Second World War, 
Many Jewish people came from Eastern Europe and settled in Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg, bringing with them age-old religious and cultural traditions, including klezmer music. Here is the Bagstreet Klezmer Band. Formed in 1992 in the old Jewish quarter of Montreal, this band took its name from Quebec's oldest synagogue, situated on Bag Street and Clark. Faithful to the klezmer tradition, Bag Street is a much-beloved fixture on the Montreal Jewish music scene. Here is Odessa Bulgars from their album, Go Meshuga.
you've enjoyed listening to this Canadian musical tapestry. How lucky are we that we are able to enjoy and revel in all the different musical traditions this country has to offer. Most definitely, music is instrumental in providing for us a greater understanding of our different communities. That is what makes this nation great, a nation we all call home. Happy listenings. Bye for now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me, and for the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be talking about movies, TV, and providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today, I'll be discussing the recent passing of writer-director-performer Carl Reiner, a program of John Ford Westerns coming up on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, a newfound controversy over the movie Gone with the Wind. I'll also be looking at the life of Raymond Burr in the light of the new version of his TV series, Perry Mason. But first, Montreal movie theaters, which have been or are about to reopen. After three months of being shut down, both big movie theater chains in Quebec, Cineplex and Guzo, are reopening at least some of their theaters today though mostly what they'll be showing are previously released popular films or movies held over from earlier in the year. All of the big new summer releases, movies like Mulan and Tenet, have been rescheduled for either late in the season or even in the fall and beyond. There will be plenty of health and social distancing measures in place, of course, with initial theater capacity at no more than 50%. Cineplex itself is hoping moviegoers are willing to return to its theaters beginning on Friday, as the company deals with an uncertain future in the wake of its failed plan to sell itself to Cineworld, the world's second-largest cinema chain. According to a report by the Canadian Press, Cineplex shares fell after the company warned about its ability to, and I quote, continue as a going concern, end quote, in its release of delayed quarterly results. The company did reach a deal with its lenders to provide some financial relief for the second and third quarters of 2020. But after that, the company needs to secure a minimum of $250 million in new financing. Nevertheless, to celebrate the reopenings and welcome moviegoers back, Cineplex is offering $5 tickets for its screenings. Uh, I'm not sure how long that deal will last but it is in place as of now. Not all of its theaters are opening today. In fact, only five are opening today, including Scotiabank and uh, Cartier Latin, but not the one in Cavendish Mall, I'm afraid. All others are supposed to reopen in phases throughout the month ahead. You know, just hours before he passed away on Monday night at the age of 98, Carl Reiner had sent out a string of tweets praising the dry wit of British playwright Noel Coward. And a little over a week before that, Reiner was still fielding questions from his home in Beverly Hills about his groundbreaking career as both a writer and performer in the earliest days of television. He also talked about the creation of The Dick Van Dyke Show and the launch of Steve Martin's movie career, among 
other accomplishments. So it's fitting, I think, that a few days later he would go back to his habit of throwing the spotlight on another artist who had amused him. Reiner was a funny man, writes NPR's Ted Robbins in his tribute to him. But if there's a theme to his career, it was that he made other comics funnier. He was a mensch, quote unquote. Born and raised in the Bronx, Reiner and his older brother Charlie accompanied their Jewish immigrant parents on, as he once recalled, regular trips to the cinema to see Marx Brothers movies. And according to the New York Times' Stephanie Zarek, you can hear flashes of the Marx Brothers' peripatetic cadences, their vaguely surreal loopiness, in so many of the jokes Reiner told and wrote for others. It was Charlie who told 16-year-old Carl about a free drama workshop sponsored by the Works Progress Administration. Reiner caught the bug, and when he was drafted during the Second World War, wound up being transferred to special services and spent two years entertaining the troops throughout the Pacific Theater. Back home, he appeared in several Broadway musicals before he was cast in 1950 in Your Show of Shows, the weekly variety show starring Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca. Reiner referred to himself as a second banana, but Sid had a comeback. He said, such bananas don't grow on trees. In their obituary, the New York Times noted that Reiner specialized in portraying the voice of sanity a calm presence in a chaotic universe. And also quote from Sid Caesar's 2003 memoir, in which he wrote, most people still don't realize the importance of a straight man in comedy, or how difficult that role is. Carl had to make his timing my timing, and he was the best straight man that I've ever worked with. End quote. Indeed, Carl Reiner's work during this period, especially his writing, helped define what TV would become at its very best. Playful, a little experimental, and quite fast-paced. Several top comedians of Reiner's generation cut their teeth in the writer's rooms of your show of shows and its successor, Caesar's Hour. Those included Neil Simon, Woody Allen, Larry Gelbart, Mel Tolkien. Well, the list goes on. But Reiner had an immediate favorite. One day, while pitching an idea that wasn't really flying, Reiner turned to Mel Brooks and announced that here was a man who had been present at the crucifixion. I knew Christ, Brooks ad-libbed. Christ was a thin lad, always wore sandals, hung around with 12 other guys. They came in the store. No one ever bought anything. Once they asked for water. And well, that became the 2,000-year-old man skit, which you know, eventually gelled into a routine that Brooks and Reiner performed at parties. And as Brooks told Ari Carpell in the New York Times in 2009, nothing about that was ever talked about before. We did it. We didn't write down anything. We didn't think about anything. Whatever was kinetic, whatever was chemical, we just did it. Reiner said that he'd learned a long time ago that if you can corner a genius comedy brain in panic, you're going to get something extraordinary because they fight. They don't want to die. And he's a genius. Fearing that their humor was somehow too Jewish for a general audience, the duo reserved the routine for private affairs. But one night, Reiner once recalled, 
George Burns came by with a cigar and said, Is there an album? I said, No. He replied, Well, you better put it on an album or I'm going to steal it. And so they recorded it. Reiner liked to tell the story about Cary Grant asking for a dozen copies to take with him to England, and that when he returned, he announced that it was a hit at Buckingham Palace, where he'd played it for the Queen Mother of all people. And then Mel says, Reiner told NPR's Scott Simon in 2009, well, if the biggest shikska in the world loves it, we're home free. Four more albums and an animated special followed. In 1958, Reiner wrote all 13 episodes of what was to have been Head of the Family, a series in which Reiner would more or less play himself, a comedy writer who returned from the city to his wife and son in New Rochelle each evening. The suits at CBS were not impressed with the pilot, so the show was recast with Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. That, of course, became The Dick Van Dyke Show, which was a huge hit, running for five seasons in the early 1960s. And it was probably the most thrilling of my accomplishments, Reiner once said, because it was very, very personal. Not long after Reiner's passing, Dick Van Dyke himself tweeted that his friend had, and I quote, a deeper understanding of the human condition than I think he was ever aware of. He continued, kind, gentle, compassionate, empathetic, and wise. Carl Reiner's scripts were never just funny. They always had something to say about us. Quote, unquote. Reiner also wrote novels, children's books, and memoirs. And in 1963, Joseph Stein turned Reiner's first novel, the semi-autobiographical Enter Laughing, into a well-received Broadway play featuring Alan Arkin, with whom Reiner would co-star in Norman Jewison's comedy The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, made a few years later. In 1967, Enter Laughing, the story of a young man struggling to launch, launch a career as an actor, became Reiner's debut directorial feature film. What followed were the comic in 1969 with Van Dyke himself as a silent era comedian, and then Where's Papa in 1970 with George Siegel playing a lawyer trying to scare Ruth Gordon to death. Many more films followed, including Oh God in 1977 with George Burns, then a very young 81 years of age playing uh, the Almighty himself. That movie, of course, spawned a mini-franchise, uh, but for Reiner, it was one and done. Two years later, he teamed up with Steve Martin for the first time with The Jerk, followed in 1982 with the film noir parody Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which ingeniously incorporates clips from classics featuring the likes of Bogart, Betty Davis, and Barbara Stanwyck. The Man with Two Brains followed that, and then Reiner and Martin's fourth and final film together, All of Me, in 1984, which well showcases Martin's dexterity as he plays a man who finds that his body is suddenly being shared by an eccentric millionaire played by Lily Tomlin. As a director, Reiner never again scored a hit as big as these films that he had made with uh, Steve Martin, who has himself written a tribute to Reiner, calling him my greatest mentor in both movies and in life. Carl Reiner's last film behind the camera was That Old Feeling, made in 1997 with Bette Midler. 
As an actor, though, he was introduced to a new generation when he appeared as a con man drawn out of retirement by Brad Pitt in Steven Soderbergh's trilogy of Ocean's Eleven movies in the 2000s. And just last year, he was the voice of Carl Rhinoceros in Toy Story 4. His son, Rob, has himself directed many popular comedies, including, in 1989, When Harry Met Sally, whose most famous line, I'll have what she's having, is spoken by his mother, Estelle Reiner, whom Carl married in 1943. She passed away in 2008. Mel Brooks' wife, Anne Bancroft, died in 2005. And for the past several years, the two old comedians had dined together nearly every evening. In February of this year, the writer Hadley Freeman had paid them a visit and wrote a lovely dual profile for The Guardian. But just before he passed away, the day before, in fact, Carl Reiner had tweeted, Nothing pleases me more than knowing that I have lived the best life possible by having met and marrying the gifted Estelle, who partnered with me in bringing Rob, Annie, and Lucas Reiner into this needy and evolving world. You know, of everything that he accomplished in his 60-year career, perhaps the most significant is The Dick Van Dyke Show. What Carl Reiner contributed to television just with that show alone is immeasurable. I do not exaggerate. When you watch a sitcom with multifaceted characters, with natural dialogue, with jokes so sharp yet so real, you're seeing writers who are adding bricks to the foundation that Carl Reiner had helped create with the Dick Van Dyke show way back in 1961. And you know, you can watch episodes of that show today on the library's Hoopla digital streaming service but also on YouTube. And while Reiner wrote over 50 episodes of that iconic series, he also stepped in front of the camera as the character of Alan Brady, the obnoxious egomaniac performer, very unlike the real-life man himself, at the center of the show within a show. And if you want to see Reiner at arguably the height of his comedic power, well, watch any of those episodes, though I do recommend in particular the episode from season five entitled Coast to Coast Big Mouth. That's Coast to Coast Big Mouth, an episode of The Dick Van Dyke Show, available to stream on both Hoopla Digital and YouTube. Today on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, there is a series of classic westerns from the great Hollywood filmmaker John Ford. Although he directed more than 140 movies, including short films, uh, as well as such standouts as The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley, The Quiet Man, and so many others, from the silent era to the 1960s, it is for his dozen or more sound westerns for which he is best known today. Beginning at noon hour today, a little late for this podcast, is one of my favorites, Wagon Master, from 1950, among the most pacifist and poetic supposed action films that you will ever see. It's also the one Ford cited as his personal favorite among all his westerns, but you can nevertheless catch up with it at the library as it can be reserved, like all those I'm going to speak about now, as a DVD. After Wagon Master is Three Godfathers from 1948, about three noble outlaws who adopt the baby of a dying woman 
whom they come across while wandering in the desert. Like all of Ford's films, it is beautifully shot, but with the color cinematography here especially noteworthy. Appropriately, the film is dedicated to Ford's mentor, Harry Carey Sr., the bright star of the early western sky, in the words present just after the titles. At 3.30 p.m. is She Wore a Yellow Ribbon from 1949, which in fact won the Oscar that year for Best Color Cinematography. This is certainly among Ford's greatest films about a retirement-bound cavalry officer, played by John Wayne, who averts a war with Indians by running off their pony herd instead of fighting them. Again, no violence, just a beautifully evoked autumnal feeling of getting old, with almost no plot to speak of, and all within the rituals and communal life of this Calvary outpost. At 5.30 p.m. is Fort Apache, which, like the previous film, is another in the so-called Cavalry trilogy of movies made between 1948 and 1950. Fort Apache is loosely based on the story of Custer's Massacre, though like she wore a yellow ribbon, it is mostly a kind of celebration of community within the regiment, in which the Martinet Custer-like figure played by Henry Fonda clearly does not belong. And it may remind you that Ford's depiction of the American West is really quite progressive for his period, with characters like Cochise invested with a sense of dignity and ethical correctness about the conflict that stands in sharp contrast with Henry Fonda's character. Ford also used Native American actors and stunt players uh, throughout his career that he paid a Hollywood wage to, which was fairly unusual for the time. And he went to Monument Valley, where he filmed um, all all his westerns and uh, created an economic stimulus, especially during the Depression era, that the resident Native Americans uh, valued very dearly. And he is also using native language and costuming here, especially in Fort Apache and these other movies um, among the Cavalry trilogy. At 8 p.m. is My Darling Clementine from 1946, also with Henry Fonda, uh, but this time much more heroic as um, the real-life figure of Wyatt Earp in events preceding the legendary gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Some of the most iconic moments in Hollywood movie history, I think, can be found here, like the scene with Fonda sitting in front of the saloon on a chair, rocking back on its back legs and propping his feet up against a post. As he leans on the post, his stoicism gives way to a lovable kind of goofiness, while he sticks his arms out in a balancing act and then switches his feet back and forth against that post. It's, it's a wonderful scene. Then there's also um, the scene where frontier settlers gather in a half-built church with American flags waving overhead. Again, it's all very poetic. And indeed, it's the entire Western idea here in microcosm, I think, that the spirited frontiersmen go west, young man, you know, tame the wilderness to create a community of laws and build lives for future generations, however askance we may look upon that idea today. Artistically, certainly the most uh, noteworthy aspect of this film is the depth of field photography, which helps make it two among the most beautifully shot, in this case, of black and white Hollywood films. 
As in so many Ford films, especially the westerns, there are many images of individuals set within or against a grander landscape, uh, as if to underscore their frailty and aloneness. This is especially true in The Searchers, which follows at 10 p.m. today with John Wayne in almost certainly his greatest performance as an embittered, deeply troubled Confederate veteran of the Civil War who searches several years for his niece kidnapped by Indians. But we're never sure until the end if he wants to kill her or rescue her. The Wayne character here is very atypical of Ford, the eternal outsider, the individual without a home who cannot be contained by community. And to paraphrase a line in the film, one who is condemned forever to wander between the winds. That's a program of John Ford Westerns playing today until midnight on Turner Classic Movies, and all of which are available to reserve as DVDs from the library. Ford films, of course, are not the only ones that may be challenging for contemporary sensibilities. It's true of classic Hollywood films in general, and not only for representations of race and issues surrounding it, though that is especially so in a recent controversy involving Gone with the Wind. Which is officially back on HBO Max, just weeks after the big new American streaming service removed the film from its platform, condemning the racist depictions, quote-unquote, in the film, and promising to return it with what it called, and I quote, context. Last week, the film was made available again on the streaming service, but now it comes with two optional educational videos for viewers to watch, which HBO Max hopes will educate and inform audiences. Now, while some of us may ponder whether the movie really needs such supplementary material, I must say that material is really quite good. TCM host and film scholar Jacqueline Stewart does indeed provide context for viewers at home in one of the two videos HBO Max has added. Stewart, who is a professor in the Department of Cinema and Media Studies at the University of Chicago and has written multiple books on black cinema, argues convincingly to my mind why, and I quote, the much-loved 1939 epic drama should be viewed in its original form but contextualized and discussed. In Stewart's Gone with the Wind introduction, she talks about the legacy and background of what she calls one of the most enduringly popular films of all time, quote-unquote, while noting that, and I quote again, the film has been repeatedly protested, dating back to the announcement of its production. She says, producer David Oselznick was well aware that black audiences were deeply concerned about the film's handling of the topic of slavery and its treatment of its black characters. And so, for that reason, tempered much of the overt racism found in the book on which it is based. But she adds that Gone with the Wind portrays the antebellum South as a world of grace and beauty, but without addressing, and I quote again, the brutalities of the system of chattel slavery upon which this world is based. Stewart continues, the film's treatment of this world through a lens of nostalgia denies the horrors of slavery, as well as its legacies of racial inequality. Watching Gone with the Wind can be uncomfortable, even painful. Still, it is important that classic Hollywood films remain available to us in their original form for both viewing and discussion. End quote. 
The second video added by HBO Max is a truly fascinating hour-long recording of the, Com the Complicated Legacy of Gone with the Wind, a panel discussion from last year's TCM Classic Film Festival, and which you can also watch on YouTube. I recommend it highly. The panel is hosted by author and historian Donald Bogle, but also involves Stewart as well as Molly Haskell, the longtime film critic, scholar, and historian, whose book, From Reverence to Rape, is an exhaustive study of the representation of women in mid-20th century Hollywood and European cinema, but who is also something of an authority on the film herself, having written a book about it ten years ago entitled, Frankly, My Dear, Gone with the Wind Revisited which you can borrow from the library, by the way. Lively, nuanced, informative, and very smart. Everyone involved in this discussion clearly loves the movie, knows it very well, and has seen it many, many times. So please don't expect any hysterical one-sided denunciations of the film. It's really not that at all. Quite reasoned. A wonderful discussion. Although Gone with the Wind's return to HBO Max comes with added disclaimers, HBO said earlier this month that they would not edit the film itself and would show the 1939 film as, and I quote from them, it was originally created. To do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. If we are to create a more just, equitable, and inclusive future, we must first acknowledge and understand our history. Quote, unquote. Amen to that. Very hard to disagree with. That's the panel discussion, The Complicated Legacy of Gone with the Wind, available to view on YouTube, and also the book from Molly Haskell, Frankly, My Dear, Gone with the Wind Revisited, available to reserve from the library. You know, something else to watch on YouTube is the great film noir Pitfall from 1948, with Dick Powell, Elizabeth Scott, and Raymond Burr which I saw for the first time only a couple of years ago. Perhaps what most intrigued me about it was the dark, despicable bad guy of the film, played by Raymond Burr. I mean, it really threw me, because although I had seen Rear Window many times, Burr in that film seems much less tangible than in Pitfall, where you can almost literally feel the heaviness of his presence. Of course, growing up in the 1970s, I had always thought of Raymond Burr, if I thought of him at all, as someone specializing, not in bad guy roles, but as the actor who portrayed the charming and honorable master criminal defense lawyer, Perry Mason, in the TV show of the same name, and the role with which he will forever be remembered, having played him in 271 TV episodes and 26 TV films. Now, Raymond Burr passed away many years ago, but there is a new HBO TV series with that very title, Perry Mason, and with actor Matthew Reese playing that same Earl Stanley Gardner character that, that has intrigued me a little to view, and which you can find on Crave, the series of cable TV channels available from both Videotron and Bell. Nevertheless, it was that Raymond Burr performance in the unrelated movie Pitfall that really got me interested in everything else that he did, especially his character work as bad guys in other film noir. But also, including looking up as much as I could find about his life. I had always known that he had been born in Canada, but what I did not know 
was that he had lived his life as a deeply closeted gay man, and as such was one of the first gay actors to ever star in the lead role of a wildly successful TV series. Now, to put Raymond Burr's imposing stature in context, of course, there were other closeted gay actors, many of them working on television, when Burr landed the lead role of Perry Mason in 1957. And of course, it would have been professional suicide to have lived his life in any other way. Other gay actors of the period did, or rather had to do the same thing. But unlike Raymond Burr, they were not in the lead. Most intriguingly, and compared to many of his peers who were content to be reported on as, and I quote, confirmed bachelors, end quote, and leave it at that, Burr, and most likely his publicist and manager, concocted a truly titanic tale of heterosexuality so tragic that no one would dare question it, even though Burr clearly had had the same male living companion for over 30 years. Here's the truth. According to Michael Starr's biography of Raymond Burr from 10 years ago entitled Hiding in Plain Sight, The Secret Life of Raymond Burr, Burr was in fact legally married to approximately one woman. He married Isabella Ward, an actress, in January 1948. The two had met five years earlier at the Pasadena Playhouse, where he was a teacher and she, two years his junior, a student. They separated just a few months after getting married and she moved back to Baltimore. Their divorce was finalized in 1952 and neither married again. Ward's 2004 obituary doesn't even mention the marriage. And then there are the lies, as detailed in um, Michael Starr's book. The first, uh, or at least most significant early lie being uh, that as part of a movie studio bio furnished alongside the 1946 film San Quentin, Burr is described as a quote-unquote widower whose wife had died in a plane crash four years earlier. In subsequent interviews, Burr, or perhaps his people as well, would embellish that story, giving her a name, in fact, Annette Sutherland, and claiming that she was on a passenger plane that was shot down by the Nazis. Indeed, the same plane crash that killed 1930s film idol Leslie Howard. But, according to Starr, no one named Annette Sutherland was ever aboard that plane. Now, none of this is particularly unusual in the annals of Hollywood make-believe, but it all goes to show the hypocrisy that mainstream culture insisted upon in order for gay men to work successfully within it. Ward, whom Burr had actually married briefly, remember, never heard him even mention Sutherland during their brief relationship, and she definitely never heard about the son that Burr allegedly had with Sutherland. Yet in the late 50s, Burr added a dead son to his personal mythology, one that was born, supposedly, in 1943, just before his supposed first wife's death in that real-life, otherwise real-life, plane crash. This supposed son, Michael Evan Burr, Burr claimed, died of leukemia in 1953 before which, according to studio publicity, Burr had, supposedly, taken a year off from his career to take little Michael Evan on a cross-country trip. But the truth is, not only did Michael Evan never exist, but during that supposed year-long break, Burr filmed eight movies and seven TV episodes from 1952 to 1953. Hey, that's some break. 
As if portraying himself as a widower with a dead son was not tragic enough, Burr added a second dead wife to his narrative in 1959 while working on Perry Mason. The story he told his co-star, Barbara Hale, was that he had married a woman named Laura Andrina Morgan in 1955. Morgan, according to Burr, was dying of cancer and wanted to be married before she passed away. Burr obliged. But according to the book, Hiding in Plain Sight, Burr's supposed marriage to Morgan doesn't line up at all with what he was actually doing in the mid-50s, entertaining the troops in Korea and supposedly dating Natalie Wood. During that time, Natalie Wood was regularly set up with very public dates with a number of closeted gay actors in order to get the 18-year-old starlet in front of the cameras and to dissuade tabloids from running rumors about certain men being a certain way. Burr was one of them. But the even bigger star, heartthrob tab hunter, was another. Raymond Burr's life changed in 1960 when a 30-year-old actor named Robert Benavides delivered a script to the Perry Mason star. Burr took an instant liking to Benavides, who had himself spent the late 50s jumping from guest role to guest role trying to start an acting career. According to Starr, they then became inseparable. Now, despite all this work to hide in plain sight, an actual scandal nearly blew up Burr's career in 1961, when the notorious tabloid Confidential, whom Elizabeth Scott sued, by the way, uh, years earlier, I believe, ran a story that he had hooked up with a New York City drag queen. Now, according to the Starbook, when that story ran, it was framed as Raymond Burr kissing a female impersonator under the impression that the man he was kissing was really a woman. It's speculated that Burr or his people paid money to tone down the story from, you know, Raymond Burr hooks up with gay male bartender to Raymond Burr unknowingly kisses a drag queen. Nevertheless, according to Starr, both Burr and Benavides made their relationship work from the moment they met in 1960 until Raymond Burr died in 1993. They even went from life partners to business partners when Burr suggested that Benavides constantly fraught over his languishing acting career, switch to working behind the scenes. And as a result, they formed Harbor Productions, which produced that other popular Raymond Burr TV show, Ironside. The couple then turned their passion for orchids into Sea God Nurseries, which operated in a number of locations, and also started a vineyard in California's Dry Creek Valley. Oh, and they also bought an island in Fiji in 1965, which they sold almost 20 years later for great profit. When Burr passed away, Benavides was by his side, and Burr had willed his entire estate to him. Now, the great irony here is that prior to meeting Benavides, Burr's life story had been defined by unspeakable tragedies, twice a widower and a grieving father, and all of that made up in order to keep people from whom Burr really was. But after meeting Benavides, Burr lived, at least according to Starr, a happy life that seemed like a fantasy, buying an island, an international orchid business, over 30 years with the love of his life, and all of it true. 
So in Raymond Burr's case, you might say then that the truth of his life was gayer, greater, and much happier than the supposed fictional reality of it. That's the movie Pitfall, now streaming for free on YouTube, as well as the new HBO TV series Perry Mason, available from Crave, and also the book by Michael Starr, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Secret Life of Raymond Burr. Anyway, that's all for now, folks. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next Friday for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions at all, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving me a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.